It was a summer I'll never forget. As a kid, I spent most of the school year dreaming of the structure-free days of summer where you can watch the prices right in the morning and, and play outside the rest of the day. This was no different. As the weather turned warmer and warmer, some of us kids had spent more time playing outside as the days grew longer. We'd often play right up until mom called us in for dinner and then some after. I remember the first weeks of summer vacation, playing various games with the neighborhood kids. Games of massive hide-and-seek, two-hand touch football, baseball in our backyard on the other side of the creek. Then there was basketball. My dad had built a hoop onto the back of the old international truck. And then one of the neighborhood kids got one of the early versions of the movable hoop with a water-filled base. I can't think of anything that happened to trigger this event. I can't think of anything I did to deserve it, but it happened. It's etched into my memory. One summer day, I came out to see two of my friends sitting on the curb in front of their house. They had a basketball. I went out to see what was going on and to figure out what we'd be doing for entertainment that day, but when I started talking and asking those questions, there was no response. They ignored me. They were giving me the silent treatment. I figured it was just something they were doing to mess with me, but it continued on until I got tired of it and went back inside. Later that day, the same thing. The next day, still the same. In fact, for the rest of that summer, I got the silent treatment from these friends. I got ignored and treated like I didn't exist. There would be a group of them in the living room of one of their houses, and I would knock, and no one would answer, even though I could see them through the storm door. They were quite diligent in their ignoring of me. I had become the invisible boy. In hindsight, I should have used my invisibility to my own advantage, but I didn't. I just found other things to do. Watched more prices right. That's probably about the time I took a greater interest in gardening. Eventually, they did start talking to me again. Much later in life, I even got an apology from one of them, but never from the other. I was a victim. In some way, all of us are victims. Unjust, unfair things have happened to all of us at some point in our lives. But at the same time, we, we have all undoubtedly made victims of others. Like the time another neighborhood kid decided we should bust into the empty house down the street, which we did. We broke the back door to the house and got in. And we didn't do anything in the house besides break the back door, but we broke into the shed and used the paint we found in there to paint our names inside. Several weeks later, the owners found out, as did my parents. Let's just say uh, corporal punishment was involved, as, uh, as was restitution to the victimized parties. Fortunately, they agreed not to involve the authorities if we repaired the damage. But I was a vandal. I had vandalized a neighbor's property to fit in with a friend. I have been a victim, and I have made others victims. Ever since the fall, there have been victims. We have sought to make ourselves superior to others and use them to our own advantage. We have aligned our identity to these victimized statuses, though rarely do we align our identity with our equally true status of victimizer. We gladly accept the sympathy and outrage that comes with our state of victimhood, but but we never accept the criticism and condemnation we may rightly deserve for those wrongs we have done to others. When we have been wounded, we are survivors of the abuse. 
We find connection and, and camaraderie among others who have the same story. We find community and understanding with those who also place their identity in the same place. We find support from those outside the story who think we are brave and strong for having overcome these things that happen to us. This is who we are. We don't do the same thing when we are the abusers, which we all are in some way, shape, or form. We glamorize our personal pain and gloss over the pain we have caused others. We're always the victim or the hero, but never the villain. Sure, there are exceptions, but in large part, we don't seek out support from others who are the same kind of villain as us. We don't usually find our identity in our villain nature. We, we don't look for support, nor do we give it, from others on the outside to be that way, even though this is just as much who we are. Today, we live in a society of victims. It seems that everyone is a victim in some way or another. Not all, but many. And even for some who may not find their identity in victimhood, there is still identity in being a survivor of it. It has been increasing in intensity for decades. It has reached the point of requiring now safe spaces on college campuses and and requiring us to be careful of triggering the victimhood of others. We need to understand victimhood culture because it has become the dominant force in our society today. It is the air we breathe. It affects us in, in so many ways, including our pursuit of becoming like Christ. Honor, dignity, and victimhood cultures. Some of the information and framework in the following ideas are based on the work Microaggression and Moral Culture by Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning. Our culture has been changing since the 1990s. The 18th and 19th centuries were what they call an honor culture. People socialized into a culture of honor will often shun reliance on law or any other authority, even when it is available, refusing to lower their standing by depending on another to handle their affairs. Honor cultures place importance on socially conferred worth reputation, and positive social image, all of which can be granted or taken away by others. Responding to insults is more important in an honor culture than in dignity cultures. The use of duels to solve problems was used in America right up until the Civil War, and this was done in lieu of involving official authorities. Honor was something that had to be earned and protected. The next culture was then called a dignity culture. The idea is that dignity exists independently of what others think. So a culture of dignity is one in which public reputation is less important. In fact, it is commendable to have thick skin that allows you to shrug off slights and even serious insults. Parents likely taught their kids some version of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. This phrase would have been unheard of in an honor culture. Dignity cultures place the importance on context-independent, individual and inherent worth, which is less affected by the social regard of others. A culture of dignity is where it is assumed that all humans have dignity that doesn't have to be earned or personally defended. The next culture, the culture we currently live in, is the victimhood culture. A culture of victimhood is one characterized by concern with status and sensitivity to slight, combined with a heavy reliance on third parties. A culture of victimhood is one characterized by concern with status and sensitivity to slight, combined with a heavy reliance on third parties. 
People are intolerant of insults, even if unintentional, and react by bringing them to the attention of authorities or to the public at large. Domination is the main form of deviance, and victimization is a way of attracting sympathy. So, rather than emphasize either the strength or inner worth, the aggrieved emphasize their oppression and social marginalization. This teaches us to separate people between good and bad or good and evil. We divide ourselves up into more and more classes, which creates eternal conflict and grievance. This creates the feeling of of walking on eggshells, and the result is the implementation of safety culture, where words and ideas are violent, so we need trigger warnings and safe spaces. Members of victim classes are made weaker and more morally dependent. Now, let's look at the effects of culture on identity. In an honor culture, identity was defined by self-reliance. Social status was earned by how you lived and how you did business. Status could also be taken away in the same way. People handled their own disputes as a part of fighting for their identity, and the emphasis was on strength. In a dignity culture, identity was defined by dignity. All humans have dignity, which doesn't have to be earned or personally defended. People relied on authorities to resolve disputes, which led to identity then being determined and defined by those authorities. The emphasis was on inner worth, regardless of social status. In a victimhood culture, identity is found in being a victim. You can gain status by being a victim or by standing up for one. People look to other victims to handle their disputes and vice versa. While it's expected that authorities continue to handle disputes, the people themselves have also become an authority and are proactive in handling the disputes of others in an effort to gain social status. Identity, then, gets defined by my feelings, which I expect to be defended by all authority figures. Any authority that does not defend my feelings is an oppressor. The emphasis is on oppression and social marginalization. While I'm not arguing for an honor or dignity culture over our present victimhood culture, because I will argue that all human beings deserve to be treated with dignity and respect because they're made in the image of God, the effects on identity are substantial. Identity has progressed from being the product of character and action to being the result of our feelings. Whoever I feel like being at the moment is primary, and society as well as reality are expected to bend to my feelings. Identity is definitely trending in our society, but it's trending in the wrong direction. Unforeseen consequences. As a result of this trend in identity and culture, our world is getting smaller. We think the world is getting larger in the sense that we have access to more people and relationships simultaneously than ever before, but our world is getting much smaller and divided. In an honor culture, the world was at our disposal, in a sense. The way we lived and acted determined the amount of social influence we had. The strength of our character combined with our actions paved the way for our social influence. The size of your world was equal to who you were. In a dignity culture, our world was shrunk because the primary access to that world was now through authority figures. We believed these authority figures stood up for us as humans. We then believed that that we deserved the status that accompanied our predecessors' character and actions divorced from our own characters and actions. All along the way, we became more and more dependent on authorities. The strength of our character didn't matter. 
We deserve to be treated with dignity regardless of our actions. And whomever the authorities said we were determined the size of our world. Now, in a victim culture, the world is at our disposal only through like-minded victim identity groups. We believe we have inner worth and that inner worth cannot be tied to any external expectations. Character doesn't matter. Authority only matters in so much as it supports and defends our predetermined inner worth. Our world then becomes limited to those who think exactly like us. Our world is affirmed by my tribe, and anyone who thinks differently than I do is oppressive and an enemy that should be dealt with harshly and ungraciously by the authorities. The problems with playing the victim. First, it denies reality. As much as we'd like to believe that we're always the victim and never the victimizers, we do, in fact, hurt others. There are times when we say the wrong thing, intentionally and unintentionally, and we wound someone. There are times when when we're trying to help, but the way we try to help doesn't help and in the end creates more frustration. Then there are the things we do that we think we are justified in doing because we believe our truth is the right truth and everyone else should respond accordingly. So we get up on our high horse and look down at all the others, thinking we have the right to be looking down, not realizing that we are actually creating victims in our wake. The second problem with playing the victim is that when we play the victim, it tends to become our identity. How many times have you heard someone say, I'm a dot dot dot, and follow it with their preferred victim identity? We cloak ourselves in our victimhood and willfully embrace the fallen and broken parts. You are not that thing. You are not limited by whatever it is. You are so much more than that. Refuse to allow your identity to be confined by the broken and fallen identities this world would seek to put on you as a label. The third problem with playing the victim is it actually keeps us in bondage. By choosing to play the victim, we are choosing to stay a slave to sin. Remember last week how we talked about truth and that anyone who sins is a slave to sin? Those were Jesus' words, not mine. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Paul says earlier, you can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God. The or is critical. You cannot choose to sin and choose to obey God. It doesn't work that way. Playing the victim is choosing to embrace whatever bad thing that happened to you. It is choosing to embrace whatever that thing is that you struggle with defeating. It's not only saying, this is who I am, but it is saying, I am choosing to keep myself chained up to the prison I've been set free from. Now, you're probably starting to think, what's with all this talk about being a victim got to do with courage? That's a great question. It has become clear to me that courage is a huge missing component from today's world. Not only today's world, but today's American church. We are quite anemic in our courage to stand for the truth. And if we do, we tend to stand in the wrong way. We are less emboldened in our faith than ever in our history. And at the same time, amongst political groups, there seems to be a growing courage to stand up for what you think is right. Wayne Cordero, founding pastor of New Hope Christian Fellowship in Honolulu, Hawaii, in a talk, shares the story of a time that he was in China teaching and equipping leaders of the underground church. He was meeting with a group of 22 church leaders, and of that group, 18 
had been imprisoned for their Christian faith. These 22 leaders oversaw 20 million Christians. He passed out the 15 Bibles he had and noticed that one lady gave her Bible away to the person sitting next to her. Why? Because she had memorized the chapter he was teaching from while she was in prison. Bibles were confiscated in prison, so other Christians would bring in handwritten chapters which they would memorize as fast as they could before they got taken away. At the end of his time teaching, Wayne asked them how he could pray for them. Their their request was that they would be able to have the same freedom Americans had to gather and that they would one day be just like the American church. But he refused. They were incredulous. Why, they asked. And this was his answer. Because you guys rode a train for 13 hours to get here, and my country... If you have to drive for more than an hour, people don't come. You sat on a wooden floor for three days. In my country, if people have to sit for more than 40 minutes, they leave. You not only sat here for three days on the wooden floor, but you did it with no air conditioning. In my country, if it's not a padded pew and an air conditioning, people don't often come back. In my country, we have an average of two Bibles per family, and we don't read any of them. You hardly have any Bibles, and you memorize them from pieces of paper. I will not pray that you become like us, but I will pray that we become just like you. While the appearance of courage in many non-Christian circles seems to be on the rise, courage within Christianity has been on a constant decline for decades. We don't have the courage to be at church the one time a week it's offered to us, let alone the courage to live out our faith when it's contradictory to society around us, let alone share our faith when it may cost us our precious reputation and social influence. But Jesus, on the other hand, was stunning in his courage. When I think over the whole of Jesus' life, it's hard to find a moment that he doesn't show courage. In fact, I can't think of a single time where Jesus didn't exhibit some form of courage. When he was a 12-year-old boy, he left the security of his parents' caravan and went to the temple on his own to worship. That was where he was supposed to be, so he had to go there. When he began his ministry, he went out to be baptized by the guy who was stirring up trouble for the religious leaders of the day. And then he went out into the desert for 40 days for the specific purpose of being tempted by the devil. He unabashedly spoke the truth to those who had twisted his father's original truth. He had the courage not only to raise people from the dead, but to ask the skeptics to leave the room when he did so. He had the courage to invite someone to be his follower whom he knew would betray him, the courage to cast demons into a herd of pigs which disrupted the economy of an entire town, the courage to let his friend die because there was a greater purpose, the courage to head into a town that he knew was going to kill him and to follow through with his execution. He was loyal to the cause at incredibly great personal cost. Jesus was courageous. In fact, he was probably the most courageous person to ever live. Was he gentle and gracious? Absolutely, but still full of courage. In fact, Jesus was who he was supposed to be, even if it cost him followers and rejection. In John 6, we see Jesus share his message, even though it cost him thousands of followers, which we're going to look at later in the week. 
In the Four Loves, C.S. Lewis says, he, Jesus, was not at all like the psychologist's pictures of the integrated, balanced, adjusted, happily married, employed, popular citizen. You can't really be very well adjusted to your world if it says you have a devil and ends by nailing you up naked to a stake of wood. Jesus was not afraid to say what needed to be said, to do what needed to be done, and to be who he was sent to be. How could that be? Well, before we get into that, we need to define our terms. What is courage? Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue with a testing point, C.S. Lewis and the screw tape letters. The Hebrew word for courage is amatz. It means to be strong, alert, courageous, brave, stout, bold, solid, hard. To be determined, make oneself alert, persist in, to prove superior to. The Greek word for courage, tharseo, means to be of good courage, good cheer, to take heart. Jesus, while he did not speak of having courage, did say several times, do not fear or a variation of it. But just like we spoke of with grace, one need not speak of courage when it is who you are. Winston Churchill said, fear is a reaction, courage is a decision. We see this in Jesus' life and teaching. When he said, don't be afraid, he was addressing the reaction of his disciples to environmental stimuli, such as the boat becoming submerged in the middle of the sea. Jesus wanted his disciples to choose to trust that he was able to lead them through all circumstances. Vaclav Havel, the former president of the Czech Republic, has said, Courage means going against the majority opinion in the name of truth. While I know little of Havel and what he thought truth was, this statement is true. It speaks precisely of what Christ did on earth. Jesus' courage led him to oppose the majority opinion of his day in the name of what he knew original truth to be. Now, what is loyalty and faithfulness? In the New Testament, the word for faithful is pistos. It means persons who show themselves faithful in the transaction of business, the execution of commands, or the discharge of official duties. It's one who has kept his plighted faith, worthy of trust, one that can be relied on. This too was Jesus. Woodrow Wilson said, Loyalty means nothing unless it has at its heart the absolute principle of self-sacrifice. This is how we see Jesus. He was not only completely courageous, not only loyal to the Father, but he was self-sacrificing in the accomplishing of his mission. So then, loyalty is fulfilling the mission even when it comes at great personal cost. Loyalty is something that is all but lost in our time. Loyalty or allegiance used to be one of the earmarks of our country, and not just to country either. We were loyal to churches, businesses, restaurants, and people. There was something woven into the fabric of society that that valued faithfulness. Marriages weren't easily broken. Contracts were not swiftly broken. But in a world that says, the only people I owe my loyalty to are those who never made me question theirs, a quote I found online about loyalty, loyalty has become a rare jewel. Loyalty isn't about others. Loyalty is about who you are as a person. If I am loyal, I am worthy of trust and can be relied upon. It has nothing to do with whether others around me are deserving of my loyalty. That's contractual. That's an exchange of goods. To be a person of faith, which is pistis, is to be faithful, pistos. 
So to be faithful means that I have lived out my faith. I have done what is expected of me regardless of circumstances surrounding me. I executed the commands that were given to me with precision. I can be relied on because I do what needs to be done even when it requires great personal sacrifice. Over the course of the coming week, we're going to look at courage and loyalty in the life of Jesus. We're going to dig into John chapter 6 and John chapter 7, as well as Matthew and some of the other passages where we can see how courageous and loyal Jesus was to the cause and how willing he was to lay down his life for it. But I want to end with this, the contrast between being a victim and being courageous. If we want to stand out in this world, if we, if we want to leave the mark of Christ on this world, we're not going to do it by playing the victim. We're not going to do it by, by claiming the identity of our victimhood. Yes, bad things happen to people. Yes, I know some awful things have happened to people in our church. I know that if we knew the backstories of, of, of some of the things that have happened to people in our church, our jaws would drop. But, but that doesn't give us license and permission to find an identity in something that happened to us. We cannot find an identity in something that happened to us. If we want to be like Christ, we're going to have to see that we cannot be defined by the things that happened to us. Christ the only true victim to ever walk the planet because he was the only perfect person to ever walk the planet, the only person who did no wrong, the only one who didn't do anything that deserved to be punished. He didn't do anything that deserved to be crucified to a tree. He's the only person that was never a victim on this planet, and yet he never used the status of victim as an identity. He knew why he was here, He knew who sent him. He knew where he was going. He had a mission, and he gave everything to the cause. He didn't find an identity in victimhood. The world we're living in, we're surrounded by people who find identity in victimhood. And what I'm hoping will happen is not only will we refuse to allow ourselves to be identified by our victimized states— but I hope we'll be able to start, start noticing and drawing out and the people in the lives around us the, the truth that they're more than their victimized status. That, that we will not only see them as people who are made in the image of God and, and that we will not only see them as people who have great potential in the kingdom and, and, and someone who has great worth and great value because Jesus Christ died on the cross to save their life and to give them the life that is truly life, that we won't only see them for that, but that but we'll be able to help them see that they are more than the victim identity that they're claiming and clinging to. That through our relationship with them, we'll we'll be able to say, you know what, I hear you say, I am dot, dot, dot. I am dot, dot, dot. But I see you as so much more than that. I, I, I don't think you should restrict yourself to, to being just that. I think you have so much potential. Why, why do you want to be like that? Why do you want to restrain yourself to being trapped by what happened to you? See, when we find our identity in our victimized states, then, then we are continual servants of, of what happens to us. And, and as long as we're identifying by what has happened to us, we are under the control of the people who do those things to us. 
We're, we're servants of it. We are servants of, of those things that have happened to us. We're enslaved to those things that have happened to us. And, and if we want to really experience the freedom that comes to Christ, the only identity we can, we can embrace is his, is what he says we are, who we are in him. And so, so don't cling to your victim identity and, and help people around you to see that they are not their victim identity. Start looking for and calling out and drawing out the greater qualities that exist in them, the greater potential that exists in them, the greater value that exists in them than these things that have happened to us. Christ never played the victim. He never once pulled out the oh, poor me bit. So, if we want to be like Christ, if we want to live lives that are truly like Christ, we, well, we can't do that either. We can't cling to the, oh, poor, woe is me. So what is that thing that you've maybe identified yourself as? What is that thing that when you look in the mirror, you see yourself as that thing? I don't know what it is. It could be a thousand different things. But what is that thing? You know, do you see yourself as as the kid who got the silent treatment for a summer. Maybe you're on the other side and you see yourself when you look in that mirror as the person who did that to someone else. You're, you're the victimizer. You're the one who did the horrible thing. Whether you're the receiver of the horrible thing or the giver of the horrible thing, refuse to see yourself as that. Refuse to embrace that as your identity and instead start to embrace the identity of Christ for your life. Start to cling to Christ and who he says you are. Start to cling to Christ and what he looked like and understand that what God wants to do in you through the power of the Holy Spirit is raise you to new life. That life, that Christ-like life is what he wants to give you. So as we go throughout this week and we look at examples of Christ and scripture and the courage and loyalty he had, start to look at it through the eyes of this is something that God wants for me too. This is who God wants me to be. And start to embrace that with the mindset of this is my identity. This is who I am. I am not a victim. I am victorious in Christ. (laughs) 